First, going to spend a great deal of time reflecting on Psalm 51. So I'm just going to start by just reading Psalm 51. Uh, for reminder, the context of Psalm 51 is provided in the heading to the choir master, a Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So of course the the story being, or the the, the narrative being, this is already after Uriah has been killed. Um, David has taken Bathsheba, and she is, of course, pregnant with their first son. Nathan's gone in to rebuke him, and I don't know where whether this falls in the narrative during the time when Nathan or when David's pleading for the life of his son or not. But it is going to be at around that time. So, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God. O God of my salvation, and my tongues will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I will give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, Broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good design in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifice, in burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. So as I said, Keller's going to be walking us through a great deal of Psalm 51. But he wanted to start the chapter with really two preliminary points um, to set the scene and to address what I would probably consider fundamental misunderstandings of, of forgiveness and the issue. Um, he's, point number one that he addresses is the problem of what he calls self-forgiveness. The second point is identifying true versus false guilt. And he's going to use what I would say uh, self-forgiveness and, and guilt, and, or not self-forgiveness, repentance and guilt, and kind of two, two halves of the same coin. So when we're talking guilt, I'm going to throw that term in there sometimes. Um, uh, just bear with me if I get, get my terms confused. But we're going to start with the problem of self-forgiveness and why it's an issue, why receipt of forgiveness, of God's forgiveness, is so critical um, and as I said, Keller labels this the problem with self-forgiveness. And I think the major problem with this is evident in the title itself and how it's termed, self-forgiveness. Um, in other words, we have framed the issue as being one of our inability to forgive ourselves. The fundamental issue this discloses is it demonstrates that in receiving forgiveness, we've set ourselves not in the place of God, it's God who's the offended party. It's God whose who's forgiveness we are in need of receipt of. Yet whenever we address this issue and we face issues of guilt, and I think this bears out in our own, it bears out in my own testimony. I think it bears out in the testimony of all of us that when we're facing issues of guilt, how often is it an issue not of feeling like we're, of where we can't handle it. We can't, we feel we can't be forgiven. And again, that's again saying, I can't forgive myself. That's fundamentally what we're doing when we, when we are in this position of saying, I can't receive this. 
whose word are we relying on, whose authority are we relying on in that case. We're not relying on God's authority to grant forgiveness. That's found in Scripture. If I'm putting myself out there and saying, I can't receive this, I'm not going to let go of these feelings of guilt, then we need to ask, why? Why is this? And is it an issue of I'm saying I'm not deserving it, I can't receive it because of X, Y, or Z reason? We'll get into it when we talk true versus false guilt, but guilt is important in our lives. I think we could all agree with that. It's, it's one of the means that God employs of drawing us to repentance. But it should draw us to repentance. And repentance, as Keller will discuss later, leads to forgiveness. And forgiveness is what addresses guilt. So if we can't deal with guilt in a righteous way, in repentance, then, and we, if we can't let go of it, then it has, does it evidence that we are failing to repent? So what is this issue of self-forgiveness kind of demonstrate? For, I would say one issue, I think Keller would agree, is it identifies and highlights a sin issue. And it's the denial of God's authority in this realm, including his place as the offended party, whose forgiveness is required. My forgiveness is not required. I'm not the offended party. God's the offended party. So if I can't forgive myself, what, what import is that? I'm not the one whose forgiveness is needed. I'm not the one who was offended. I'm the offending party. And yet I'm the one withholding forgiveness. So we're setting ourselves in God's place again. Also, I would say, at least in part, it's denying the sufficient work of Christ. His work is sufficient to satisfy God's righteous requirements and atone for our sins. And by saying, I can't receive his forgiveness, what are we saying about Christ's work? That it's not, are we saying it's not sufficient to cover over the things that I've done? And I want to Thoughts on that? I see people rubbing their chins. I see people drinking coffee. Yes? Yeah. That's something that Keller's going to circle back to. If Keller doesn't do it, I'm going to circle back to it, which is forgiveness, my contention, is forgiveness begins and ends with the personal work of Christ on the cross. And whenever... That is the focus of the issue. It places us in a right position as supplicant and the one in need. And it also reframes the work that he's done and the work that is required on our behalf. And all these self-issues have to fall away when the focus is on Christ and his work. Yes? Yeah, uh, I don't think Keller even really touched on that, but I think you're absolutely right. And, of course, the great irony is, you know, I can't believe I did that. Who, who do you think you are? Well, you're a sinner in need of Christ, and you recognize the fact, the fact that it bothers you. It's like, well, that's just proof positive of who you are. Turn to Christ. Uh, the other reason... I believe, uh, this issue of self-forgiveness and characterizing in that way is critical to our understanding of forgiveness. Is, and I think some people would be in denial about this, but I think it's true. If we are holding ourselves to these improper standards of forgiveness, then are we in a place to say we are properly granting forgiveness to others? I think some people, like I said, would be in denial be like, oh, I hold myself to a higher standard. Well, one, I think that's blatantly false. No one holds us to a higher standard than God. And yet, he's the one who, in his mercy, offers free forgiveness. But when we are giving forgiveness or granting forgiveness to others, are we granting it under the same conditions that we hold ourselves to? And I think that's probably the case, whether we want to admit it or not. So again, why is it important to address this issue first when we're addressing the issues of our forgiveness for others. And I think this is one of the reasons because our forgiveness is fundamentally based on a right understanding of our place vis-a-vis -vis God and how forgiveness operates. So 
is it one of those situations of I'm granting forgiveness, but it's not true forgiveness because I don't rightly understand what forgiveness is. So Keller just states the issue as follow here is the essence of what Christianity gives us. Only God is the final judge of who we are and what we have done. If, and only if, he is, then God can overrule our heart's guilt and self-condemnation. If he says we are forgiven, then we are, and we can, and I would add, we must, tell our hearts to quiet themselves. And again, this, like everything else, goes back to Christ and his work on the cross. I'm going to feel like I'm beating a dead horse, but I also got to teach the chapter on God's wrath and love at the cross. So we understand, no one understands more rightly than God, the seriousness and the evil of sin. And Christianity doesn't minimize this. And you'll see this somewhat of a dichotomy, no, not dichotomy, but this holding of concepts of Christianity does not minimize the wrongness of sin and yet still provides the powerful antidote for it. No one is going to hold up sin as a bigger problem than God. He's going to hold it up as that. He's going to affirm it more than any of us. I think that's true. It's of such a nature that it required what? It required the death of God, or the death of the Son of God. So the seriousness of sin is on full display at the cross, where Christ, very God of very God, took on the penalty of sin and bore the wrath of God to account for it. And yet, the sin's been dealt with. And so, again, when we question or doubt or refuse to receive his forgiveness, are we by our acts calling Christ a liar, who, when he died, cried, it is finished, and the veil was torn, and we can now receive that forgiveness which was provided. I want to be careful there, but I do think by our actions we might sometimes be in that position of denying what he said he accomplished. Um, and I, again, that's why I would put it in the position of being an issue of sin that it needs its own addressing and repentance. And it's something that we all deal with. So the second topic that Keller discusses is this concept of true versus false guilt. Why is it important to address this issue? Keller um, raises it as something we need to address at the forefront because it is something that will impact how we move forward when we run into these issues. What do I mean by that? The Next steps, as it were, when addressing these will be different depending on whether you are actually guilty of something or whether you have an improper sense of guilt. When I was going over my notes again this morning, I was harking back to an old um, uh, example my dad would give us as kids of the check engine light. Is your check engine light on because something's actually wrong? Or is the check engine light on and nothing's actually wrong and the check engine light's what's messed up? If you have false guilt, then repentance may, I mean, you might be guilty of some other sin, but repentance might not be the main issue that is needed. It might be a correction in understanding, a correction in doctrine, or counsel and the edification of the saints to you. Whereas true guilt is a result of sin and requires repentance. And you can't go and get relief from other avenues. So understanding the difference in which is which is going to be important for determining what do I do with this feeling. So Killer gave us three examples. There might be more, and I'll be interested to hear some of y'all have any other examples. Uh, one is guilt due to improper or unrealistic burdens. Um, this could be legalistic standards 
under, uh, improper understanding of the requirements of Scripture, or I'd even say issues that fall within the realm of Christian liberty, where you feel that there's, you're, you're making wrong actions, but it's an area of Christian liberty. We have liberty to, to, to go one way or the other, and you've not gone astray, and yet you, your, your gauge is off, in a sense. You are not rightly understanding what the righteous requirements are, and you feel that you have transgressed them when you actually haven't. And so again, that's a situation where what is the antidote? The antidote might not be repentance. Is it a proper understanding of what the requirements are? Is it turning back to Scripture and understanding, oh, it's this, that, or the other? <clears throat> Another example was guilt out of proportion. This is guilt that may arise from a, an issue that is should the where you might feel might be appropriate to feel a degree of guilt, but the guilt is out of proportion. Uh, the example that was given, uh, he he just practically gave one of, you're in a car accident and the car accident results in serious injury or harm to another person, but you caused the car accident due to a momentary lapse of attention, and now you're dealing with these anguish and this overriding, overbearing guilt because you hurt somebody. How do we deal with that? Was the momentary lapse of attention the result of sin? Maybe, maybe not. I've been in the car before and had to turn and address the children and should I have pulled over to the side before doing that? Well, in the moment it was expedient to, to just turn and address it, but what would have happened if I had run a red light and hit somebody while doing that, is do I, should, should I bear the same degree of guilt as if I had intentionally killed that person? Again, I think there's going to be gradients and there's going to be times where there is a level of guilt that's appropriate that should be dealt with properly. But there might be other times where guilt isn't appropriate in those situations and you need to address and figure out which is which. And I think that's where, again, the body of believers and counsel from one another can come in and provide a lot of guidance in that and assist us. But even in those areas where there is proper guilt, we take it to such a degree that it becomes potentially improper. Again, we are holding ourselves to a standard that may or may not be right. So, having good discernment of what we're doing. The last example he gave would be survivor's guilt. Uh, the, I mean, of course, the, the example that's often given is survivor of what? Survivor of war. When your friends didn't survive, the survivors of abuse. Perhaps you come from a family where, you know, your brother or sisters were abused, but you weren't. Um, you were in a car wreck and everyone died but you. Those are what I would say the classic examples, but I believe that, that they can run across all sorts of circumstances. Perhaps you were in a, a bad situation where you turned out okay. You know, you're in a bad work environment. It doesn't really impact you. You're not really suffering from it, but you see everyone else is and you feel guilt for that. Uh, so those are the sorts of examples that come to my mind. There's probably other examples of areas where false guilt can arise. Keller didn't spend a great deal of time addressing this. His point was primarily to bring to our attention that the key issue that we're addressing here is true guilt, which is the result of sin. And so understanding we need to be discerning and understand which is which so we can apply and turn to the right places to address them. Our response to those will be different. Even our responses to, to false guilt might be different from situation to situation. But he noted that the distinction between true and false guilt feelings is a crucial one to make because time will not heal true guilt. There are absolute moral norms embedded in the universe and your soul, made in the image of God, senses them. 
the only way to deal with true guilt is take it to the grace and mercy of God. So he's going to turn back to, again, now that we know and are rightly framed in this concept of what are we addressing with respect to repentance and forgiveness? We're addressing true guilt. The only way to deal with that is not through any of these, what he'll get into and call counterfeits of repentance. The only way to deal with it is to turn back to the grace and mercy of God. So, any thoughts, observations, comments? I'm moving faster than I thought I was going to, so go ahead. I'm sure you are. Well, look at you and laugh. Yeah, I think that's a good example because I think that highlights the difficulty in, in discerning between the two. Because I, I think you're right. There's going to be times where uh, you, you might, your gauge might wipe, your check engine light might come on where it shouldn't, or it doesn't come on where it should. Um, uh, and I would, you're not alone. I deal with that too, I'm sure. I, my, my wife would probably say she deals with it, and I probably think that we'd get a lot of nodding heads if we pulled the room. And that was, uh, that was the issue we were talking about. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So uh, what do we do with guilt? What do we do with true guilt? Uh, when, I was, uh, when I was reading the, the chapter, uh, I was reminded, there was this old mad TV skit of a doctor. He's a famous comedian who was playing him. And he was talking to a, a lady who came in to talk to him about her mental struggles. She was struggling with anxiety. She describes the symptoms. He goes, oh, okay, all right. Well, stop it. I can't remember the name, of it, but it's a great skit. You should look it up when you get home. Anyways, that's your, that's your homework for today. So Keller states it is a pretty simple uh, issue. Repent and receive mercy. Simple, perhaps. Easy, no. Uh, he, he doesn't leave us there, thankfully. He observes... Uh, he observes that scripture instructs us to do at least three things, to do two things, and then to receive one thing. Uh, so we'll run through those. He says, we need to stop blame shifting, self-pity, and self-flagellation. These are what I referenced as what he called counterfeits of repentance. There might be more. I thought this was a pretty good list. I am not as smart as Keller, and so I didn't look to add to the list. Also, talking about time management, I was running out of time. <laughs> so I thought I'd stick to the material. Uh, if any of y'all have other examples of what might be counterfeits of repentance, I'm happy to hear them. But we'll focus on these three, at least for my notes. What do we need to do instead? We need to confess transgression, forsake transgression. This, as opposed to counterfeit repentance, is true repentance. And then what? We need to receive forgiveness. So we'll start with the first set, counterfeits of repentance. What do we mean by blame shifting? It's the difference between, it wasn't my fault, I'm sorry it happened, but it wasn't really my fault, versus the taking responsibility of sin. He gave three possible ways this might manifest. Again, I don't know if these are all, but I think it's a good list. Justifying sin or painting sin with virtue's colors. And side note, if I ever say something that sounds particularly insightful or wise, it is usually someone else, and I am stealing it. That was by Thomas Brooks. So, I think this is one we all fall into in one way or the other. He gave some examples. I added a few. Not greedy, but thrifty. Not abrasive, just frank. Not a workaholic, just providing for daily needs. Not lazy or checked out, just tired. I, that might be one that I have to deal with when I get home and I just want to not deal with the kids. Why? Well, because I've been dealing with People all day. I don't want to deal with people right now. Well, yeah. Not overly hard on the kids. I just want them to succeed. You might have noticed the last three are particularly 
applicable to me in my current situation. I don't know if any of you all have examples so that I'm not just beating up on myself. Okay. All right. Yeah. So justifying or an example I think from Scripture is Saul and the Amalekites. I held back the best for God. Well, that's not what God asked you to do. He didn't want you to sacrifice those bulls. He wanted you to kill them. Shifting responsibility is another example. I wouldn't have had an affair if you'd been a better spouse, or I would have paid more attention to you if you'd done X, Y, or Z. I think this is one uh, that maybe our kids most often evidence, but I think we also do it more discreet, maybe uh, pernicious ways. I wouldn't have done it, but I was provoked. Uh, Shifting responsibility. Well, how about Adam? The woman you gave me gave me this. Well, that's a, that is a, let's just go right to the source, Adam. I mean, you're, you're blaming Eve, you're also blaming God. Whoa, that is a, I don't know if I have the, the, uh, the, the gumption to do that. I probably do. I just, maybe not that directly, but it's a pretty good example. Insist the accuser is exaggerating or minimizing. You're being too sensitive. This is for your good. What you did was worse. So, can we shift our sin? No. I mean, our sin is ours and ours alone. The scripture doesn't support it. Uh, When you look at David, in Psalm 51, he doesn't try to shift his blame. Against you, you only have I sinned and have done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. One of the things that Keller notes is David even acknowledges that he's been guilty and sinful from birth. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and sin did my mother conceive me. And you'll see this come up again in Romans 9. How dare you, God, not do X, Y, or Z for me so that I might follow you. Why did you make me like this? You knew the results. Uh, Nehemiah 9.33, and all that has happened, speaking to God, you have remained righteous. Our, uh, our accusations against God will not stand. We can't blame anyone else, including God. And to the point of David's point in Psalm 51, we can't blame our circumstances or our nature, our circumstances for our sin or our upbringing. It's not the nature in which we were surrounded or the nurture. Our sin is ours and ours alone. We can't shift it off to us. Anyone else? All right. Self-pity. So, Keller notes, real repentance is grief over sin itself and the offense and grief to God and not merely sorrow over the consequences. And so again, consider what the circumstances of Psalm 51 were. What was David's sin? The murder of Uriah, the potential abuse of power over Bathsheba and adultery. What were the results of sin? Resulted in a rebuke by Nathan. Ultimately resulted in the death of his son. I don't, it's not in the text, but I think it's fair to conclude that it likely resulted in a loss of his reputation in the kingdom. And again, it's not directly discussed in the text, but I think that we can see how this issue continued to be have ripple effects throughout David's life in, his, uh, in the subsequent succession of the kingship. I mean, the end of David's life was marked by chaos as all of his sons were battling for the throne, and which one was the one who God purposed to be king of Israel? It was Solomon, the son of Bathsheba. But 
to what extent does this sin play into some of that dysfunction? Again, it's not directly addressed in the text. I don't think it's, but can we speculate? I would say it's speculation that did it play in? Maybe. There's a lot of chaos and, and sorrow that resulted in how David worked in his family <clears throat> uh, and a great deal of harm to the kingdom because of it. Absalom was revolted, resulted in a civil war where a lot of men of Israel died. Uh, did this play into that? Possibly. Um, but David's not focused on those. He's not focused on the consequences of this, and they're important. But that's not his, his concern. His focus is on God as the offended party. Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to. Yeah, according to your steadfast, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So, self-pity, this wallowing in it, can resemble repentance, potentially. But, Keller contends, and I think it's right, it only has lasting effects so long as the consequences last. I don't know how often... And I mean, this happens to me still, where something arises and you have a, a fear, not necessarily a fear of God or a pricking of the conscience due to the result of sin, but a fear that arises because of, oh no, what's going to happen? And then as soon as the potential for that happening has passed, you get this sense of relief. It's like, well, again... That wasn't the problem. The consequences are there, and they're important. But the sense of relief kind of evidence is you were focused on the wrong thing. The sin's not been repented of. So it doesn't necessarily lead to lasting change. And again, it turns the focus back on self. You're focused... John. I heard a... a it's a good illustration and contrast to bring out. Heard a, somebody touching on the points, difference between Saul and David. And what, when we talk about everything that Saul descended into, it was, it was the focus on retaining control of the kingdom. You know, he's, he's you know, consult, consorting with, uh, with witches. Why? To bring up Samuel and say, hey, what's going to happen? It's coming to battle. <clears throat> he's trying to kill David. Why? Well, because David's a threat to his hold on the kingdom. You look in First Samuel when he's confronted by Samuel, says, "Don't take the kingdom from me." What, the, what does David say? Take not your spirit from me. So yeah, so again, it's a it's a turning back of of a focus on self, um, self absorption and the it's a form of idolatry, frankly. So rather, repentance is not the bowing down of our heads but the working of our hearts until sin is more odious to us than the punishment. So again, David's not focused on what is going to be the ultimate outcome of this. He's focused on, I need to get right with God because I've sinned. So we're not ignorant or insensitive to the consequences of sin. Um, as we as I pointed out earlier, these are, these are instruments that God employs to draw our attention to to this sin, but I think to John's point, um, you know, Saul held on and grasped and just descended and descended and descended. Uh, I think it's fair to, to say, and I believe the, the testimony of Scripture points this out in David's life, that he, he prayed and pleaded with God for the life of his son, but with the understanding that God would work and do that which he knew was right. And what ultimately happened is the son died. So he's, he suffered that full consequence of his sin. That wasn't his focus. The sin was more important than the consequence. As Keller puts it, while we are in sorrow over the consequences of our sin, what was David? David was pleading dust and uh, sackcloth. Uh, they have only awakened us to the wrongness of what we have done and how it has wronged others, especially our creator, provider, and redeemer. When David's son died, he got up and cleaned himself. 
<clears throat> and repented. So, any other thoughts before we move on? I'm going to have to start skipping notes. I thought I was going to have too few notes, but I might have to just cut you all off from comments and just monologue up here for the rest of the time. Anyways, the last one, self-flagellation. Uh, historically, we think of this as actual flogging of oneself. We don't do that much these days, uh, at least not here in the West. <clears throat> but it's the loud, intense loathing and tears. That's how Keller defined it. Uh, and he highlighted two problems as evidence. Is one, <clears throat> if I am doing this, what is my aim? He thinks, one, your aim is to pressure others into excusing you. Look at me, look how much I've beat myself up. Excuse me. Pardon and excuse. Also, it's a form of self-atonement. If I do this enough, can I, can I right the wrong? Uh, so again, we're both potentially denying the wrongdoing by trying to have others justify or pardon it. Or we're denying that God's forgiveness is what we require as opposed to our own self-atonement. John Newton observed, you cannot be too aware of the inward and inbred evils you complain of, but you may indeed, may, and indeed you are, improperly affected by them. You express not only a low opinion of yourself, which is right, but too low an opinion of the person, work, and promises of the Redeemer, which is certainly wrong. So, again, similar to self-pity, the sorrow over the consequences of our sin, our self-recriminations are good only so far as they show our dislike for sin. We're not, we can't self-atone. These things, again, indicate problems that we should address, but then they cross too far, as Newton pointed, put it. So again, circling back to the simple solution to this that Keller points out, repent and ask for mercy. But he, was, he contends that this only begins where self-pity, blame-shifting, and self-flagellation end. I think stated differently, and the reason why this is the case, is forgiveness begins and ends at the person and work of Christ. And none of these issues of self can stand there. If we're focused there, then myself has to fade away and give way. <clears throat> And all these self-counterfeits of forgiveness or repentance have no place. So we turn to Christ. What does that mean? You know, it's, again, we talk about guilt. and Guilt is important. And dealing with guilt is important. But why? Why is it? Because it should lead to repentance. <clears throat> Proverbs 28, 13. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Confess and forsake and receive mercy. Confess to make a clean, full admission of what you have done wrong without qualification, excuse, minimizing, or relativizing. Those look like the false types of or the counterfeit forms of repentance that he talked about, qualification or excuse, minimizing or relativizing. I want to go off on a touch of a tangent. Um, Keller notes that the word used to confess conveys a sense of praise, which I found interesting. Praising and thanking God. And I, he brought out a couple examples. And then I was like, okay, yeah, well, let's think about this. How, how is confession a form of praise and thanksgiving? Like we're, we're turning to God in a time where we're, we've offended him. We've transgressed. You would think that it's like this is, this is just kind of like our way to get back in right relation with him. How is it a form of praise? Uh, what do you think about it? What is confession doing? It's acknowledging he is holy to judge. It acknowledges he is sovereign to rule. By confessing, it anticipates that he is loving to save and gracious to forgive. What's the point of confessing? I mean, practically speaking, what's the point of confessing if it doesn't result in reconciliation and right relationship with God? So again, confession 
being this idea of I'm coming to you and what does it recognize? It recognizes these things. It recognizes who I am and it recognizes who you are and what you have done and what you give to us. Confession also forces us to face the fact that our sin and the results of our sin is not general or abstract. Confession is a deeply personal thing. Why? Because we are going to the offended party in recognizing that we have caused real offense against a God who is imminent and personal with us. He's the one who condescended to come down and take on our sin on his on our behalf. Blake? What prevents cheap grace? Hmm? What prevents a cheap grace? We'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. The forsaking of sin. We talk confession, but what cheap grace we'll define cheap grace first. Well, I think, one, the personal aspect of confession assists in that. I think cheap grace sort of underlies an assumption that there's just this nebulous of, of sin that is out there. But you're bringing sin and confession and offense and harm and hurt into a very personal space. If, if I just act out in the world, I, ca I call it a negligence in the wind, something you do. Well, this is an example. Something you do, you run a red light, you don't actually hurt anyone. It's negligent to do that, but negligence will win because no one actually got hurt. Confession. I'm going to God saying, God, here's what I've done. Here's how I've transgressed. <clears throat> it's bringing it back to that personal level, whereas, let's say, negligence in the wind, I've not actually hurt anyone, versus I have deeply and seriously harmed my wife in what I've done. That's a personal relationship. I don't think that's cheap at all when I'm confronted by that. If I'm confronted by just this sort of nebulous idea of, of sin, of, oh, it's just in the abstract and in the general, I think it's a lot easier to have that form of just like, oh, it's cheap, it's easy. I think part of confronting and combating cheap grace is the personal nature of confession and sin because it's against a holy and righteous God recognizing and remembering that every sin that I've committed has been paid for by whom? By Christ. How? By his death on the cross. Not only his death on the cross, but his absorption of the wrath of God that I deserved. Should I add to that burden? I think these things come in and should correct our understanding and our view of grace. What is grace? God has condescended to take on my sin, how, because of that, do I want to continue to operate in sin? May it never be. So I think these sorts of things will come in and provide safeguards, rails against us veering into those types of thinking of, oh, I can just continue to do this. It's not a big deal. Really? I think it's a, not a big deal when I don't act in a righteous way towards my wife. I certainly feel the, the impact of that, and the heartbreak becomes real to me. Why? In large part because of my relationship with her. John? Quick, I mean, even when you sin, you don't go. Yeah. Take up your bed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of the points that Keller makes later in the book is, or later in the chapter is, you're forgiven. Move forward. Yeah. So, and also, I think that you're to the point of how does this combat, or how do we stay away from cheap grace? The second point being, forsake your sin. Confess it and forsake it. What does that mean? Full renunciation of sinful behavior, both in heart attitude and practical action, is how he defined it. Or Luke 3.8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. How about the book of James? Let's just go read that. <clears throat> A heart that finds sin repugnant. Are we sickened by our sin? Do we hate it? I feel like this is an issue we often, I, I mean, I've run into it all before. It's like, I know this is sin, but do I hate it? No. What do I do with that feeling? Take it to God in prayer. Take it to the word. Take it to your brothers and sisters. Seek help. If you, if you don't find sin repugnant, seek help. That's me talking to myself, by the way. Take concrete steps that are genuinely offered. Bridges are burned. 
I take this as moving, removing access to it where we can. Carve it off. Accountability structures are put in place. Sometimes you can't fully, we can't take ourselves out of the world. But what do we do instead? We shield and we guard. We look for, how, would, how do we do that? The body of believers is one of the primary means God gives us these things. We won't attain perfection in this life. So this is going to be a journey and a struggle. But false repentance is in sentiment only. True repentance offers change. So, we repent, meaning we confess and forsake, and then we receive mercy. Or, as Keller equates that, it's a large part with forgiveness. He notes that Proverbs 28, the word for obtaining mercy is like the, is connoting the, the concept of the child in the womb who's receiving something that is not of themselves or the result of themselves. It's something that arises out of the heart of the mother. Why? Because of the heart of the mother. We receive mercy and forgiveness. Why? Because it arises out of God and his love and his work. It is free, undeserved, unstinting. And I would add, like the love of a mother towards a child, is deeply personal. <clears throat> so, our forgiveness is in this context. The counterfeits of forgiveness reject Christ and his sufficiency and insist on our, our own authority and effort, whereas forgiveness, true forgiveness, is holy of mercy. It's not easy. I think we all agree. This is something we're going to struggle with. But what has God given us to keep this before us? I'm trying to think how Keller phrased it. Keeping God's mercy ever before us is how I put it. I can't remember if that's the heading Keller gave it. <clears throat> Keller gives, what do we do? There's some practical examples he talks about. I want to say that the spiritual disciplines we have are going to be important in our walk in every aspect, but they're important here. You know, I talked about not finding sin repugnant. What do I do with that? I take it to prayer. I take it to study and meditation. I go to the saints, the fellowship of believers. When we're talking about putting bridges or cutting bridges off and putting accountability in structure, again, what does that look like? It's going to look like being in the Word. It's going to look like prayer. It's going to look like the body of believers and fellowship, these disciplines within the context and understanding of Scripture. There's an appendix in the book. I don't know if you have the book, but if you do, if you don't, um, you can ask somebody who does have it for the appendix, appendix B. It's just a list of scriptures that teach on forgiveness. It's a good place to start when we need to be reminded of forgiveness. And there's various doctrines that underlie forgiveness. He talked about two in passing and two, I would say, in more detail. Substitution. Jesus paid the penalty for our sin and fully and in our place. <clears throat> This is what the basis of forgiveness is. It again, turns us back to Christ and his work. Justification, Christ's righteousness has been imputed to us. The two that he focused on in more detail would be unity with Christ and the blood of Christ. What do you mean by unity with Christ? When we stand before the judge, what does the judge see? Well, one, back to justification, he sees the imputed righteousness. Back to substitution, he sees that the penalty's been atoned for, and then he sees our advocate. Who is our advocate? He's the one who justified and provided the substitute. Is Jesus radiant, beautiful, spotless? Is he the fairest among 10,000? Then that is how you appear to the universe's bar of justice. You are lost in your advocate. Also, remember that Christ is our advocate. He's advocating on our behalf. His advocacy is far better than our own advocacy. I'm a lawyer. I feel like I'm a decent lawyer. Pretty sure that when it comes time for me to stand before the judgment seat, Christ can make a far better case than I can. Further, his advocacy is tireless and without ceasing. I'm frail. I'm, I'm fallible. I am not infinite, but Christ is. And he is without ceasing praying and advocating and interceding for us. 
and the blood of Christ. David recognized that he was guilty of blood guiltlessness. Yet he had confidence that God would forgive him. Why? Well, Keller notes, David was looking down through a glass dimly. We can look back and know why. Because of the work Christ did on our behalf. Keller noted that there's an interesting uh, point about not being cast. David saying, don't cast me away from your presence. Take not your spirit from me. And contrasting that with the cry of Christ, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In verse 7, purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Hyssop is the the plant used by the priest in ceremonial cleansing. It was the plant used by the Jews to apply the blood of the Passover lamb to the doorposts and the lentils. And then I have a long excerpt from Hebrews 9 and 10 that I don't have time to read. I was going to, but I don't. I mean, Hebrews deals in depth on the blood of Christ and its place in our salvation and the work of Christ. And he sat down. It's done. All right. So we're almost out of time. So we're going to finish with Micah. So what's our response to this? Micah 7. Who is a God like you? Pardoning in iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. So God has dealt with your sins. Repent and forsake them. Do not go back to them to feel guilty all over. Go forward in love. That's how Keller wrapped it up. Any final comments, thoughts, observations, critiques of the lesson before we wrap up? If y'all start critiquing the lesson, I'll cut you off because we ran out of time. But anything? Yeah. Now, because you deal so much with why are you feeling you need to receive God's forgiveness? But it's like, well, what's the basis of that? It's like, well, guess what? You, you, you got some, something to do in there. I mean, it's not, not of works. That being said, we, we hold these things both as true, that we're called to repent um, as a means of, of obtaining forgiveness. All right. Well, with that being said, we are dismissed. <clears throat>